when Father John sent me a text last month asking if I would be willing to give a sermon on Trinity Sunday, I immediately agreed. But five minutes later, after further discernment, I found myself asking, what were you thinking when you said yes so quickly? In seminary, I came to realize that the Trinity doctrine was and is one of the most difficult and confusing theologies to try to understand, let alone discuss in a 10 or 15 minute sermon. In the Episcopal Church on this Sunday, the Book of Common Prayer tells us that we celebrate the one and the equal glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Trinity of persons and in unity of being. Which sounds, well, it sounds kind of confusing. For, the, for Presbyterians, Trinity Sunday is described as the day we proclaim the mystery of our faith and the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in three and three in one. Thomas Jefferson was one of the leading critics of Orthodox Christian theology in the 19th century and referred to the doctrine of Trinity as metaphysical insanities, which hindered the religious growth of humanity that it represented a relapse into polytheism, differing from paganism only by being more unintelligible. I suspect in many churches this morning, people will try to analogize their, their conceptual understanding of it. At the eight o'clock theater, one of our congregants mentioned that he felt it was water because it goes from a liquid to a stream, to a steam, and I guess to ice. I've heard people talk about it as an egg, yolk in the middle, the white part on the outside of the shell. One and three, three, three and one. But in addressing the complexity of the Trinity, Professor Alistair McGraw writes, the fundamental issue when describing the Trinity is the inability of human language to do justice to the transcendent that it is pressed to its limits when trying to deflect and describe the divine. Professor McGrath asked, how can the human mind ever hope to comprehend something which must ultimately lie beyond its ability to unfold? On this Trinity Sunday morning, our lectionary gospel from St. Matthew's is very short, only 93 words. And while earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells his disciples, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. But only here at the very end of Matthew, in the final verse, known as the Great Commission, do we find the only occurrence in the New Testament of any reference to the Trinitarian formula we recite each Sunday during our regular worship. Understanding the Trinity is critical to understanding Jesus' great commission to his disciples and to our faith as Christians. As told by Matthew, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to a mountain 
after receiving a message from the two Marys to see Jesus. And upon seeing him, they worship him. And despite all that has happened to them and to Jesus prior to this very last gathering, he tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And based upon this authority, that they should now make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These words are so profound. Yet Matthew also testifies that some who heard this great commission doubted. In reading Matthew's gospel, it's uncertain what or possibly who doubted what. Were these doubts like those expressed by Thomas in the upper room or by Peter fearful of drowning on a storm, uh, in a storm on the Sea of Galilee? But interjecting the presence of doubt in this very powerful message, Matthew greatly acknowledges our very real human propensity to question, to discern, and to even struggle with our own faith and beliefs when we come to church. Like many of the pilgrims here in St. James who recently visited the Holy Land, reading this gospel this morning transported me back to the Judean desert atop of a mountain and the Wadi Kelp area between Jericho and Jerusalem. Many scholars believe the space provided the inspiration and the beauty that, that uh, generated the um, Palm 20, 23rd, 23rd Palm. When we, when we visited this remote mountaintop in the desert, the only thing I could hear was the sound of the wind and the whispering voice of God. I sense from reading Matthew that many uh, that morning who found their way to this unnamed mountain to hear and to see Jesus struggled with their own beliefs, doubts, and faith. Like many of us on any Sunday morning who have endured suffering and loss in our lives, that called into question the existence of God. Indeed, the disciples on that mountain seeing Jesus that final time never imagined the ending when they dropped their nets to follow him. Jesus' ministry is surprised, disturbed, perplexed, and I suspect at times horrified them right up to this very last gathering. And given all that they had witnessed, hearing him claim all authority on earth and heaven, and commissioning them to make disciples of all nations must have seemed to them well, incredulous, and maybe as incredulous and as mysterious as the doctrine of Trinity, which challenges us to think about the distinctive nature and character of God who became incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth. Professor McDaff suggests that the doctrine of Trinity can be seen as an attempt to describe faithfully 
a God who, while remaining transcendent, also became incarnate in Christ, and more than that, who now dwells within believers and in the Holy Spirit. Whether standing on the top of a mountain in Jordan or in a church in the city of angels, we can feel today the power of Jesus whispering into our hearts with those five words, I am with you always. These words proclaim at the end of Matthew's gospel the Trinity. They encapsulate the profound meaning and the importance of why we evoke it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit each and every Sunday. Stephen Boyd suggests that Jesus invites us into the mutuality and power of the divine life and sends us to invite one another. St. Paul, I, I believe, was communicating the same sentiment to his people of Corinth and his final farewell to live in peace and to receive the love of God. I've heard Jesus whisper, I'm with you always in my heart. The morning my mom was killed during an early morning walk at the birth of my son 30 years ago when I doubted my own capacity to be a father and countless other times in my life when I was feeling most alone and most vulnerable. The good news of Matthew's gospel is that I am with you always means Jesus walks alongside of us during our time of joy and sorrow, when we're righteous and loving, when we're sinful and weak, when we loudly proclaim our faith as disciples or when we quietly struggle with our own doubts late at night, staring up at the ceiling, asking, God, are you out there? But I think in Matthew's gospel this morning, he emphasizes that, that Jesus does not leave us alone. He does not leave us powerless. And when Jesus and while Jesus does not promise us in the words of Lynn Anderson, a rose garden, a world that is always just and loving and free of pain and suffering, he is promising that he will always be with us in the good times and the not so good times. With us yesterday, with us today, and with us to the end of the age, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.